HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash farm report. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So it's the first episode of our summer season, and unfortunately, we are all still at home, sheltering in place due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So for now, we're going to continue bringing you episodes of The Farm Report and all of Heritage Radio's other incredible shows by recording remotely. And normally I just dive into a new season, but in light of everything going on in the world, um, I've been thinking a lot about how to really focus the next few months of The Farm Report around a theme that speaks to what farmers and everyone else involved in the food system is going through. So, you know, things are tough right now, and half the time I just want to throw up my hands in despair and crawl under a blanket. Um, But unfortunately, um, (laughs) I've got a role in this mess, and that's to help you understand what is going on when it comes to farms and food. So during this season, I'm going to be bringing you stories of adaptation, of how farms and food businesses are having to pivot and adjust to feed people and where that's working and where it's not, and what all of those things can tell us about resilient, equitable food systems. Um, And that's not to say that I want to gloss over struggle. I think that in addressing adaptation, we're going to encounter struggle because that's what prompts the need to change. So on that note, my guest today is Tim McCollum, the CEO of Beyond Good. Tim, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Lisa. So I am especially excited to have you on to start off this new season because we're going to talk about chocolate and (laughs) what a great place to start. I do get that a lot. Are people often excited to talk to you because they love chocolate so much? Uh, Yeah, 
often. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm personally still excited about it and I've been involved in it for over 10 years. So I can understand why uh, someone newer to, to chocolate is. <laughs> well, and just to be clear, I'm not new to eating chocolate, but to talking <laughs> about how it's produced. <laughs> um, anyway, so I want to I want to get into um, the background of of Beyond Good and how you work with cacao farmers and and what you do. But just because I I just did that whole spiel about adaptation and what we're going through, um, I want to just kind of use your recent experiences to kick off this theme first. So, you know. Adaptation, when it, it relates to biology, is defined as a change or the process of change by which an organism or species becomes better suited to its environment. Has Beyond Good had to go through any changes recently to become better suited to the era of COVID-19? Um, well, I could say with confidence that we've gone through some changes and are we better suited? Um, I think so, but that you know, takes a little bit of time to know for sure. But yeah, I think anyone in the food industry is affected. You know, luckily, anyone in the food industry is involved um, with the product people require to live. So we're probably better off than than most industries, but not immune to dealing with a lot of the fallout about what's going on for sure. Right. So, so what are some ways that you've had to make changes? Like, how have you been affected specifically? Um, well, we're, we've got an interesting business because we're vertically integrated across a couple of different countries, um, you know, from, from basically cocoa farming through to distribution of the final chocolate bar. Um, so on the, you know, on the distribution side, I, I think something like chocolate, while not a, an essential item the way water or flour is, it, it might be considered a new essential the way like wine or coffee is and that mm. um, it's just something people want to have around. So our challenge won't be to, you know, educate people about what chocolate is and why they should want it. It's about figuring out if distribution channels have shifted and if so, in what direction, and then how do we become relevant? Um, so that's kind of on the, the, the distribution side, I think that's a moving target. Yeah, right. as of you know today, May sixth, and it might look different on May seventh, but that's one area. Um, and we're 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 looking at innovation inside of ourselves, and we're also looking at some interesting uh, evolution of established businesses. You know, maybe it's a distributor that used to supply restaurants that now has developed a direct-to-consumer model because the restaurant sector is shut down. So how can we right. work with those distributors in a new way? And then, you know, tracing things back to, to in our case, the very beginning of the su supply chain, that's 8,000 miles away in a different country with a, a different set of circumstances altogether, but also dealing with COVID-19, you know, you know, through a different lens, it's got a, it's fair amount of challenges. Um, but I think what's also interesting is being integrated gives us a little bit of insulation in that, um, you know, we can influence almost every part of our, our entire supply chain, whereas, you know, a traditional company may not be able to do that. Right. Well, yeah. And I mean, the chocolate industry is, is kind of notorious for, 
supply chain issues and or at least just like supply chains that are filled with um, hidden problems, um, you know, child labor among them. Um, and I think the the larger industry has really done a terrible job of kind of addressing those issues in the supply chain. And but you just bypass that completely by working directly with cacao farmers in Africa. Um, essentially, you just established your own supply chain. Um, how did how did you go about doing that? Like, what was it like to say, okay, we're just going to start with the farm and we're going to create this whole new whole you know new distribution system and um, talk a little bit about like how that got started. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you made a couple of great points there, and one is the chocolate industry does have a lot of huge issues, um, and it's an enormous industry to begin with. So you, you look at those issues and understand they're magnified by the size of the industry itself. So, like you said, child labor being one, transparency being another, endemic farmer poverty being another, no shortage really of issues. Um, mm. And in our case, we we didn't want anything to do with any of that. Um, so we realized the only way to um, build a supply chain that we'd be proud of, one that we'd not want to run away from, but but kind of point to is like, this can be done differently and better was to, to build it from scratch. Um, and I think like a lot of th- th- things built from scratch where there's no template or model for how to do it. Yeah. The only way to do it is trial and error. And I think in many ways, that's the story of how we've been able to build, you know, what we have over the last decade, um, you know, one step forward, two to the side, two step forward, one step backward. And you look back over the course of a decade and you realize, yeah, something new has been built, but it's not always a, a linear process. It's more iterative than, you know, a straight line of how to, how to build. Um, and I, I'd say it was likely in retrospect to our advantage that we had no idea what we were doing when we started <laughs> out with, um, you know, the concept a, a while back. Right. And are all of the, the farms and all the production, it's all in Madagascar? No, I, I'm glad you asked that up front because um, hmm. that's our mission is to make chocolate start to finish in Africa. Um, but not all of our chocolates made there. Yeah, last year, about 50% was made there. Um, okay. This coming year, or 2020, it should be about 75%. Um, it's very challenging to do. Um, and we look at it as it's kind of like the brand's North Star and that we're walking towards that every day. We might never get to a point where we can say 100% of our chocolates made at origin, but um, as long as increasing quantities are each year, we know that the the brand is going in the direction we want it to. Right. What What are the challenges that prevent you from moving all the production there? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I rack, you know, back through my memory over 10 years of like what, what hasn't worked and what has, um, you know, I think to start with, um, you know, the, the, I'll start with some of the obvious, right. There's, okay. there's no infrastructure. So mm. in a country like Madagascar, it's geographically the size of Texas. It does not have a single traffic light in the entire country. Wow. Um, it doesn't have a road system. 
it's not an Anglophone country. So, you know, communication can be very challenging. Um, mm -hmm. There's no real um, power system or grid that can deliver reliable energy. Uh, there's no established, you know, uh, culture of food manufacturing. So we have to build all those things from the beginning. Um, so those are kind of the obvious ones. And then some of the less obvious ones that we only know with a lot of experience have more to do with, you know, perhaps, you know, the, the values gap or the knowledge gap between, you know, how rural farmers in Madagascar think and how our market in the U S moves, you know, the pace mm. is, is different. The expectations are different. Um, all those present challenges, but I think where, where we settled as a business probably five years ago was you get to a point where you're actually quite comfortable dealing with challenges and uncertainty. Um, and you realize none of these are showstoppers. They just, um, you know, kind of force you to recalibrate and think about things and, um, develop, strategies that you know perhaps you weren't thinking of a couple of years ago mm. well and and i guess if you're if you're used to being presented with lots of challenges then when bigger challenges like coronavirus come up you're you're used to dealing with <laughs> roadblocks right and it's like okay and another one i mean maybe the, <laughs> the biggest the, the biggest one right but yeah, i think <laughs> no i think that's a good point and no one has dealt with coronavirus before, so I don't think anyone can say they know what's next or how to, how to deal with it, um, you know, flawlessly. Yeah. But to the extent there are businesses and brands and, you know, farmers who've dealt with adversity in the past, you do develop a certain aptitude for operating with, with little visibility um, so that at least, you know, you're not panicking and, um, you know, forcing too many things. And yeah, I think that's a, a very fair statement. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about what the actual farming looks like. So I, I don't think a lot of people can picture maybe not even the plant that <laughs> chocolate starts with, right? Like it's kind of a, um, it's not something you see often um, depicted is like where how chocolate starts out can you just talk a little bit about like what cacao farming looks like um and specifically like the farms that you're working with yeah i think and i again i think you're you're exactly right in that most people you know might have a vague knowledge that chocolate originates you know on a tree somewhere but not really what that looks like so yeah technically it's it's a fruit um and it grows on a tree. A tree is, you know, typically 25 to 30 feet tall. Um, and it will have several pods that can be harvested throughout the year. Um, one of the more interesting things about, you know, the crop itself and how it's farmed is cocoa is a shade crop. So it requires a canopy to really thrive. And the ideal mix is about 50% sun, 50% shade. If you can get that combination, you know, cocoa has a better chance of, of producing higher yields. Um, the other interesting thing is there are different varieties of cocoa, the way there are different varieties of tomatoes or strawberries or anything else. And a lot of those different varieties have different flavor to them. Um, but we've kind of in the U.S. Um, 
in a sense, we've commoditized the product by uniform flavor. Whereas what, what our brand is about and a lot of many others is trying to bring more flavor to the customer, um, kind of opening their eyes to this idea that not all chocolate tastes the same and that it can have re really interesting flavor notes that aren't obscure. They're pretty obvious, um, but they just haven't been accessible to customers until more recently in the U.S. Right. Um, and the farms that, that you're working with, are they small? Are they like, is it mostly lot, uh, small farms and you're working with a lot of them? Are there big, you know, large operations that produce a lot of um, cocoa? Like, give me a sense of the, the scale. Yeah, it's a, it's a mix. So in, in mm -hmm. our case, um, we work with about 100 farmers in Madagascar. The majority of those are smallholders. Average land being one to three hectares, um, so relatively small. Um, but then we do have a couple of farmers who might own five or six hectares and one who has closer to 50. Um, so it's really a mix. But, you know, if you were to look at the industry from a global point of view, it's dominated by smallholders. Um, they're really the backbone of the industry, uh, primarily coming out of Africa and, and many trying to kind of scratch a living off of a hectare or less. Um, so very challenging from a farming point of view. Probably one of, the, one of the problems that if the industry can't really fix, you have to figure how sustainable is it in the end if you've got three to four million farmers living in, in poverty. So and not just poverty, you know, poverty at the level of African poverty, which is pretty severe. Um, so that farming and the economics at some point need to improve considerably for the industry to really be sustainable. Right. Absolutely. Um, well, I want to talk more about that. Um, let's um, go to a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get more into economics and, and talk a little bit more about some of the farming practices. Uh, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or a small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers, no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash farm report. Okay, this is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Tim McCollum from Beyond Good. 
we've been talking about chocolate. Um, so, Tim, I, we left off on this note about the economics, right? And, um, I mean, a lot of chocolate is really cheap, right? <laughs> Hmm. Um, <laughs> that's the first thing I thought of when you said, you know, and it, like, it seems like it's probably too cheap. Um, if you can buy a chocolate bar for what, like 99 cents or something like that. Um, how, but, but it also sounds like, you know, the way you do things is potentially expensive as a company. Um, talk a little bit about how you're making the economics work in terms of, you know, how do you get to a place where you can produce chocolate in a way that's economically feasible and pay farmers fair wages. Um, yeah, I think in in our case, I always point to our supply chain and you know the the and contrast that with what typically happens in the industry. So, you know, the average supply chain, you might have four or five intermediaries between the cocoa farmer and the chocolate factory, and in our supply chain, we have zero. Um, so we've basically redirected all of that activity in the margin into farmers Mm. pockets and then also to control our costs at retail so that it's an approachable price point. So we retail on on average at at around $4 per bar, whereas something with comparable quality would be closer to eight. Um, our farmers make, um, you know, about $4 a day compared to less than a dollar a day in, in the industry. Um, but I think you're right to point out that chocolate, there's a lot of cheap chocolate on the market. Um, the price point is cheap because frankly, like, you know, the materials are cheap, um, Mm. and the inputs aren't great. So the quality isn't great. So, you know, it should cost about a dollar. Um, but to get anything with real quality and flavor, um, yeah, I think you're looking at, at upwards on average of six or $7, Right. But in your case, you're able to keep that down because of the taking all those players out of the middle of the supply chain. Yeah. And I think what's yeah. interesting is like we didn't know any of that when we first started. <laughs> it was it was all about manufacturing at origin because that's where you know, we wanted to create more value in Madagascar. We'd worked and lived there as Peace Corps volunteers. That's kind of, you know, the lens we we use to approach the business. Um, so it was all about value add at origin, Madagascar being one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. So, Uh you know, sourcing wrappers locally, sourcing other raw materials locally, getting a finished product made and exported versus the raw material. That was the original focus. It was only years in the industry when we started to realize how what we were doing was so different to the status quo and how none of the problems that exist in the status quo supply chain exists in our supply chain. That's when we started to realize just how many people we'd eliminated in the supply chain um, in terms of collectors and intermediaries and what that does for the farmer's pocket, but also what that does for, for product quality um, and traceability. So it's got a a ton of benefits to it, but like I said, kind of, kind of hard to pull off, but certainly, um, you know, worth the effort in our case. Right. When you say product quality, is that just because you have more control over the process? So yes. And I, I, I think it's over the entire process. So if you mm-hmm. uh, imagine a big chocolate factory in Europe, for example, 
and they're buying cocoa from a broker in Europe who's buying it from an exporter in Africa who's buying it from an intermediary who they themselves is buying from another intermediary and on back until you get to the farmer. Mm. So what control does that chocolate factory or chocolate maker have over the quality of the raw material material they're buying? Like the answer is zero. If you're just being honest, they have zero control over it, zero ability to influence key elements like fermentation and drying, which bring out the flavor of the product. Um, So in our case, on just the raw material side, because we're in country, you know, we're, we have a team there. Um, you know, we're able to evaluate every single sack of cocoa before we purchase it. We've mm. worked with some farmers for about eight or nine years consecutively as exclusive partners. So we've really been able to influence um, fermentation and drying standards to get the flavor out of the bean that we're we're trying to get out. And then on the factory level, you know, we, we're, we're managing the factory. So, I mean, we have, I guess you could say complete control from, you know, of product quality from start to finish, which is also pretty rare. I come to think of it in the chocolate industry. Yeah. I mean, really it's, it's rare in the food industry overall, um, but maybe even more rare in chocolate. It is. And I think even in the general food industry, like you said, that's, you know, having been an outsider coming in, you know, my knowledge of the food industry was limited to that of like the average consumer. I do my grocery shopping every Saturday morning and I never questioned how a product gets onto the shelf. And I assumed if you, you bought a, a jar of pasta sauce, that the brand on the jar actually made the pasta sauce, which usually isn't the case. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I think there's probably too few brands making their own products Um, and that that in and of itself enables you to control quality in a way that, um, yeah, at least for us is important. Right. And then, you know, for the the buyer, the eater, it's like, it's, maybe they're getting a higher quality product and it's also just so much easier to know where it's coming from. Right. Like there's just, like you said, you mentioned transparency earlier and, um, it's like, you know, I, I do, I eat a lot of local food because I like that. I can know exactly where it's coming from, but with chocolate, you know, you can't, I can't buy chocolate locally, uh, because you know, I live in the mid Atlantic, but um, it's like, yeah, it's like a, a made up thing, local chocolate in the U S right. um, but, <laughs> but I think it's the, like that, the bigger issue. That's is, another way to get transparency is just to have fewer steps in the process. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say the other issue Sorry. is like even a lot of, um, you know, chocolate makers or factories, they couldn't tell you who farmed their cocoa and they're the, mm. the manufacturer of the product, but it all has to do with, how opaque the um, the supply chain is. So if they yeah. don't know, as a consumer, obviously you're not going to know. Right. Um, I saw too that um, on the site it says that you work with uh, farmers on organic certification. Is is all of Beyond Goods Chocolate organic? Uh, let's see. We have nine SKUs, and eight of them are certified organic. And the okay. ninth is 94% organic. So it doesn't carry the USDA label, but mm. 94% of the products are organic. So 
I'd answer that question more directly is yes, with a slight right. caveat. Except for that one, 6% of one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what, um, what is organic certification look like for cocoa? Like, are there a lot of, um, pesticides involved in conventional, um, farming and, or like other practices that are different? Yeah, I can, I can speak with a little more, um, knowledge about what we're doing on that specific Mm. question. Um, the only knowledge I have of, you know, pesticides and, more conventional brands and chocolate is based off of, you know, reading and secondhand knowledge, but not firsthand. But yeah, the reports are that a lot of the issues in West Africa have to do with monocropping and heavy uses of fertilizer um, and pesticides. Mm. In Madagascar, um, we've gone through the process of getting every farmer we've worked with, um, yeah, an annual organic audit. And it's a pretty long paper trail we have to put together. Um, it's a pretty intense process. And if you imagine there's a hundred farmers on average, they've, you know, two to three hectares. So mm-hmm. it's just a lot of work, but it's something we, we, um, yeah, we committed to, I want to say about five or six years ago. Um, the, the, <laughs> The, the kind of unfortunate part is um, in Madagascar, um, there are no herbicides or pesticides in the cocoa region. Um, so it was all naturally organic in a sense, yeah. but um, we wanted the, you know to go through the formal process so we could use the USDA label. But Got it. Um, yeah, and I mean, if, if you ever have the when opportunity- When you say there, sorry, gonna, when you say there are none, like they're not allowed to use them, is that- no, it's even more like um, rudimentary than that. So it has to do with affordability and presence. So, ah, um, huh. you know, I remember this going back 10 years when we'd start working with retailers in the U.S. and they'd ask us if we were organic certified and I'd explain no and here's why. You go to a farmer in Madagascar and you ask them like what their fertilizer is and they'll say, I use these leaves that fall from the trees as compost. And that's how I get nutrients into the soil. So it's, you know, it's almost like a a time and and an area like long before pesticides ever existed. That's what Madagascar is like. Um, Right. Like the industry just hasn't gotten there yet. It it hasn't. And and so farmers don't, they literally can't conceptualize what we talk about when we say, um, you know, chemicals that you put into the land to make the the trees grow. Um, that's how you'd have to translate it. And that, you know, they have a hard time understanding what you mean by that. Even if they could conceptualize it, they probably wouldn't be able to buy it because there isn't any, you know, in that region of the country, um, mm. never really has been. So, um, but all that being said, I think it is important to give the customer confidence in organic to be able to carry a USDA label and have the formal certification rather than just explain what I explained to you in the last two minutes, because not everyone has the time to hear that. Right. Of course. Yeah. The seal is just a shortcut to, to communicate a lot very quickly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have to wrap up. Um, 
I'd love to just hear from you. Um, what's next for Beyond Good? Like what, um, what are you planning? What's in the future? What are you excited about? Um, so I guess I'd say two things mainly, right? One is mm-hmm. we've got a new factory in Madagascar. We just finished. It was our first factory in terms of building something from scratch. And we've got more work to do on that. Yeah, we got 75% of it right, but we've got to do certain things with that facility to get it up to higher capacity. We've got a lot more um, demand for the product coming online. So we've got to get our capacity in Madagascar up. And that that's two different things. It's the factor. It's also finding more farmers to get into our network and on our program. Mm. As we do that, um, we're also going into Uganda. Um, you know, ah. we've been focused like a laser on Madagascar for a decade. And in many ways, it's like kind of where we cut our teeth and figured out certain things and to find out, you know, just how scalable this is and, and just how, how much of a, a test we can give ourselves. We, we want to see if we can do this in Uganda. So that's, that's the next phase of the business. We recently launched three SKUs from Uganda, um, that were not processed or made in Uganda, but the cocoa is from there with full traceability. Um, Recently launched those into the market in March. And over the next two years, we're gonna be building a a new supply chain, just like the one we did in in Madagascar. Wow, so that's that's a huge huge project, it sounds like. A lot coming up. It is, and it's exciting because we we get to put a lot of things to the test and nothing's gonna be, you know, we always like to say no two supply chains are identical. So it's, it's like a a bit of a puzzle and we have to figure out what, what do we know that will work and what are those things that, you know, we have to learn new that are only applicable in Uganda. Um, But it's a, it's a big challenge for the business and one that we're, we're all very excited about. Absolutely. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Lisa. Very much enjoyed the conversation. And thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.